Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Among the least pleasant experiences in life is feeling stuck. That stuck feeling comes in multiple forms and we've all felt themes and variations of it. Even Dr. Seuss wrote about it in his book that is often given as a graduation gift, Oh, the places you'll go. If you've read it, you might remember the part about being in the stuck place he called the in-between place, which he also describes basically as excruciating. So even Dr. Seuss agrees being stuck sucks. And I can only hope he would have also said being stuck sucks. It sucks in a house with a mouse and it sucks on a boat with a goat. And if we were able to step outside the overwhelming experience of feeling stuck, we might ask these questions. What does being stuck actually mean? What are some common pitfalls that lead us to being stuck? And of course, what are some good ways out of being stuck? Fortunately, I know just the person to ask. Britt Frank is a psychotherapist in private practice and the author of a highly readable and wisdom-packed book called The Science of Stuck. I absolutely loved this book and I am not alone. Former super psyched guest, Dr. Richard Schwartz, who is the creator of one of the most important systems of psychotherapy called Internal Family Systems, said, in this lively, well-written book, Britt Frank adds her compelling voice to this movement toward listening rather than avoiding or fighting with what is making you stuck. I really enjoyed being with Britt and I'm confident you will love learning from her. So listen in as Britt and I talk about the science of stuck. Britt Frank, welcome to Super Psyched. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, I am beyond delighted. I loved your book so much. And it's like one of those books that you read and you think, oh my gosh, I have a sibling out there who I've never met. And I'm so thankful to you for distilling so much of the complex research and putting it in such an understandable manner to the masses and for citing stuckness as being really a major metric that all of us experience. We've all experienced stuck. We've all, we have all read, Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss. And remember that kind of in-between space that he talks about, which is the stuck space. And it sucks to be stuck. But let's hear how you would define stuck first off, just as a basic thing. So I would have called the book originally The Science of Trauma. But the word trauma, one, is so divisive. Two, it's become so trendy and so watered down that people think trauma means this and it's only for a specific subset of people. Mm -hmm. And so not everyone identifies as a trauma survivor, but everyone knows what it's like to be stuck. So my definition of stuck, so my disclaimer is stuck is not you are living in a war-torn country or subject to oppression or poverty. Stuck assumes you have your basic needs met, relative safety, and nevertheless, you feel like shit. You're stressed, you're burnt out, you're overwhelmed. You know you should drink the water, but you reach for the wine. You know you should power down your screen, yet you're doom scrolling for hour five. We do the things we don't want to do. We don't do the things we do want to do. We're baffled by our behavior. We label ourselves as lazy or crazy. 
And there's a science behind why we do the things we do and why we don't do the things that we want to do. And knowing just a little bit of the brain science in plain terms without advanced bio training is really useful. It's like driver's ed. You don't need to be an auto mechanic to drive a car. I've flown a plane after one lesson. I don't know anything about aviation. I knew enough that I could fly a plane. Well, I could take off. I didn't land it. But I could take off and do a circle without crashing. And so you don't need a neuroscience degree to be able to understand how we're wired and why we do what we do. And when we know why we get stuck, we can get moving, which is incredibly good news. So freeing. And I love that analogy of flying. And we don't need to know everything about how the sausage is made in order to take part in whatever it might be. And I'm going to just go out on a limb here because I can't resist. I'm going to try to summarize a little bit of what you said in my own words of a definition, a discrepancy between our desired lives versus how we're living. That's a great synthesis. Yes. Okay. Cool. Gap between like knowing and doing. A gap between knowing and doing. And it's so great. Ah, I love that. Okay. And a little bit about you because you have made the bold choice to really be out there, vulnerable, very self-disclosive about who you are, where you've been, the struggles you've faced. And I love it. I am so grateful that you're doing this. I think it's a definite service and it runs, as we were saying offline, it runs kind of counter to how we were trained. And yet there appears to be great benefit. First off, I guess I'm going to ask two-part question. You have decided to share about your stuckness in life. And I'm wondering what has been the outcome per your observation of people who hear about this and your ability to serve them? So, and again, no shame or shade to fellow colleagues, but a lot of the therapist type of books are written as case studies or client composites. And that's great. But I have found just personally as a very messy human, I don't want to sit in front of someone who's so clean and shiny and pretty that I don't feel seen. Or as you said, when we were chatting offline, I don't feel felt by them. So I don't share in a trauma dumping way. I think Brene Brown talked about you share from your scars, you don't share from your wounds. And so the things that I have worked on that are scarred over, they're not bleeding out. So it's not like, oh my God, I'm in just total hyper trauma mode, vomiting my shit on everyone. (laughs) It's like, no, these are things I've been through and they're relevant as I'm sharing this information about your brain to know that I've been in the trenches. I don't want to sit in front of someone who hasn't been to some version of hell. We don't all have the same hell, but most of us know what it's like to go. And I want someone who has a few stamps on their passport if I'm going to sit in front of them. So I didn't want to be a hypocrite. So if that's my requirement, I I have to do it. So I did. God, I feel like I'm being tickled right now. This is making me so happy. I can't even stand it. And the other thing I love about what you're saying, I mean, I just love that idea of having that passport to hell and stamps in it in the contrast between our wounds and the scars. Yeah. I mean, showing up, we're not going to be very helpful if we've got these gushing bloody wounds, but the scars are edifying. The scars tell a story and they're about what has happened in the perhaps the God willing, the wisdom that we have acquired as a result of acquiring said scars rather than, hey, I'm gushing right now. So I got some of my RAM space needs to be allocated to that rather than to the person sitting in the room. So I think that's a beautiful descriptor. One of the things that really made me happy also about the book is you covered so many areas of stuckness in general, everything from the way we communicate with ourselves, to the way our bodies may play a huge part, very underrepresented part in our 
mental health in general, as well as connecting with people in our romantic lives. Every, I mean, you cover from so many angles and you also did it in a very gentle, judicious manner, sharing the fact that you're doing it from a cisgendered female who identifies as Caucasian and has certain privileges. And that was, I thought it was very, very holistic in terms of your utterance of the book. You weren't coming from high up. You were really coming from across the table and saying, hey, let's hang out. I'm going to share my stuff and share what I've learned. And hopefully it will help you is kind of what I got from your book. What was the part of the book that you've been getting feedback on mostly that has been really helpful to people? It's funny. The thing I get the most feedback on was something I didn't do really intentionally, which was structure the book so you don't have to read it in order. Because I know that when I was smoking meth and addicted to Vicodin and in a domestically violent situation, I'm not going to read a stack of books and I don't want to deep dive. So I structured the book. So if you want a deep dive, there's plenty of breadcrumbs and trails to follow. But if you're just trying to get from stuck to go, you can skip around. You don't have to read it in order. There's no prescription. The exercises take five minutes. And people, it surprises me because that's how I get really aggravated when something in the intro of any book says, now make sure you read it in order because the information is going to build on itself. I'm like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to read all your words. I want to read what's relevant to me. And so I give very clear permission in my intro, skip around, skip shit that's not relevant. Here's where you can dive in where it is. And so it makes me really happy. That's just how I like to read nonfiction. It makes me really happy that people are responding to that. But that is the most consistent feedback I've gotten. Thank you for writing a book I don't have to read in its entirety. Yeah, and you very carefully knowing how people learn and recognizing that we all have various degrees of reluctance to initiate behavior that may yield something good. And let's talk about that for a minute. Just the compunction that all of us experience. Like intellectually, it's like, oh my God, yes, I know I should do this. And yet I don't. What exists in that gap from where you sit? What's the fear and or other elements that may kind of trap us in mediocre or less than optimal lives? So it's Gay Hendricks who wrote The Big Leap, which I love, talks about (laughs) limiting, which is great. People label it as self-sabotage. I don't believe in self-sabotage. Now, do we do suboptimal things that screw up our lives? Yes. But what the majority of people call self-sabotage is an effort to self-protect and the yucky underbelly of unmet goals and untended to dreams and unstarted businesses is that we benefits from staying small. We get benefits from staying stuck. Our brains are organized primarily for energy conservation, not for success, happiness, abundance, joy, connection, love, all of those higher level, wonderful things. And no one wants to say, the reason I don't want to get fit is because I'm afraid if I get fit, I'm going to be unattracted to my spouse and I'm going to realize the marriage isn't working and I'm going to want to leave. I have heard that enough behind closed doors that I'm like, wow, Why can't we talk about... I mean, I get why we can't talk about that to each other. But if we don't identify the hidden benefits of not doing the things we want to do, then we're not going to do it. It's sort of like what you and I were chatting about with honesty being a prerequisite for connection or a subtype of connection. If we're not honest with ourselves about the good, the bad, and the ugly, we're not going to be able to sustain change. And there are benefits to every behavior. Not all behavior is legal or ethical or okay. But all behavior is functional and people get very, oh my God, clutches at pearls. How dare you suggest that I do this thing, get a benefit out of it. 
But I'm like, I smoked meth. I mean, I don't know how much more gross and real you want me to get. I got benefits from doing that. I could avoid painful truth. I could avoid living in a body. You get high enough on speed, you don't live in a body anymore. You're floating off in some weird realm where shadow people exist. I was able to stay very much in life is happening to me and I have no choices. And again, this is just me. I'm not saying that everybody addicted to drugs has the same story. But if we're not willing to honestly and without shame, just assess the reality of the benefits of behavior, they're not going to change. And that might be terrifying. This is like a black belt level skill of being able to be honest with what's going on because the honesty itself can hurt so badly. How can people fortify themselves to what are some skills that you've seen help people identify something that they don't want to be honest about and really get into honesty? And I mean, lots of compassion on self-deception. I lived in self-deception and denial and everything from covert denial to outright lying and manipulation. Been there, done that, have the t-shirt. But I think the task of honesty is threatening because it implies we're going to have to do an action. Oh my God, if I admit I'm unhappy in my job, now I'm going to have to leave. So one of the things I like to do in my work with people is let's uncouple knowing from doing. Just because you're willing to get honest about something doesn't mean you, quote, have to do anything about it. You're going to have some choices to make, but becoming consciously aware of what's true anyway is going to give you more mastery over your organism, not less. Knowing what's true anyway is going to give you more sense of agency over your behavior, not less. But just because you admit to yourself that you don't like your job or that you hate this marriage or that you regret becoming a parent doesn't mean you have to do something chaotic or life-altering. But honesty with self about self is the fundamental task of mental health. And it feels like it's the root cause of so much. I'm even thinking about how our bodies will adjust when there is a pain point and we will begin to walk with a limp or with a tilt in our body. And unless we address the root cause, the body will continue to respond. And similarly, if we are engaged in a behavior that's not serving our life's deepest wishes, our life will somehow conform. But there's something even more nefarious at play here. Over time, we can tell stories to ourselves because of the benefits that we receive from staying small. Almost a form of pablum that allows us to just be more committed to living rather crappily. And some of the things that you've even identified, like as a woman who has not having children by choice, that you don't get shamed by people who are happy with their choices of being parents, but you get shamed by people who are unhappy about their choices of becoming parents. And I think that's akin in somewhat to the kind of misguided stories that begin to foment over time that we tell ourselves about our choices that really were suboptimal in so many ways that we it's kind of similar to limping over time. We begin to believe the stories we tell ourselves rather than live in truth. I wondered, wondered if you, yeah, you're nodding. Let's hear what your thoughts are on that. People that are committed to their own truth don't shame other people for their choices. And so when people tell me, well, how do I even begin to know what's true for me? And again, complex trauma, what world would have called borderline personality disorder. I had that in spades. I didn't even know what kind of food I authentically liked because I was such a shapeshifter. But if you're not sure who you are and what you're about, let's start by who are you judging? 
And who are you shaming? Because we all have little secret parts of us that do it. We all have little shadows. I have found, interestingly, as someone who has chosen to be child-free by choice, that people who are settled on their decision to parent don't shame me. But I get plenty of, well, isn't that selfish? And who's going to love you when you're old? And you'll never really know what it's like to be a woman until you're a parent. All this other nonsense that gets spewed. People who are committed to their truth don't shame other people who are working their stuff out. And so it's an interesting little way of sorting and filtering. One, to notice what are the judgments that you're receiving from who? And where are you holding judgment? Because our own judgments are a wonderful trailhead to our own shadow content. And we need to know what we don't know about ourselves in order to be whole. Anytime we're seeking goodness or happiness at the expense of wholeness, we're going to find ourselves in some fuckery. And that's just pretty much universal. Oh, that's so good. And I notice I get more judgy when I feel socially awkward, unhappy with myself. Yeah. And you're nodding. And I find myself wondering, given that your degree of living inauthentically, if I could use that term with you for so many years, led you to not even know what kind of foods you liked. How did you get real? I mean, how did you, I know that's a big question, but how did you begin to live in truth and actually come to know who you were, what you liked, what you wanted from a good place. It was really unpleasant little journey <laughs> from I am going to live a lie consciously, unconsciously in every other way to now I had to start really small and it was very humbling to get as meat and potatoes simple as what do I want to eat this morning? And I was anorexic for a while, so I wouldn't eat anything. So when I was coming out of that, it's okay, now I have a biological organism that requires food to live. What do I actually like? I know what I was supposed to like. I know what I was told I like, but as simple as, okay, I'm crunching on this chip. Do I like it or not? I'm wearing this color. Do I like it or not? I'm listening to this song on the radio. Do I like it or not? Again, our brains are organized for energy conservation. So we do most of what we do on autopilot. I mean, how many times do you, well, pre-COVID, just sort of cruise around driving and you miss your exit or you're like, oh, oh I'm for sure. sure. How did highway hypnosis? and Are the things that you're ingesting socially, recreationally, chemically, from a media standpoint, how is it affecting you? Do you like it? Do you choose it? Or is it a default setting? And I got my life to a point where I wasn't going to survive another chapter of that story. Not everyone needs to have the level of depravity to which I descended, but it can be, I don't believe a rock bottom. Rock bottom is wherever you're like, I'm done. I'm ready to do something different. For me, I was stubborn. I'm a New York Jew. I was like, I'm going to dig in with my fingernails. I'm not going to let go until I am two shades away from utter destruction. But not everyone has to do that. That was true for me. So So it's almost as if for you to write yourself, you needed to plummet to the bottom of the bottoms. Yeah, you're nodding. You and I are both fans of this particular quote from Carl Jung. Unless you make the unconscious conscious, it will drive you and you will think it was fate. I want to say that again for the listener. Until you make the unconscious conscious, it will drive you and you will think it was fate. That is such an important piece and it lends itself to something you also talk about in a beautiful way and something I care about deeply, the human shadow. And I was wondering if you could tell me how shadow, first of all, what is shadow and something that I think is so important for the listeners to know about and how do we get into relationship with that part of ourselves? I love shadow work too. And again, just like I don't like when the neuroscience world uses intellectually masturbatory language, the metaphysical world is just as obnoxious. 
trying to read <laughs> young is like taking a sleeping pill. And I love his work, but he's so good. Nor. Okay. So what's a shadow? What's this woo woo concept? So in nature, if light is blocked, something is going to cast a shadow. It's not that complicated. So psychological shadows are anywhere our awareness is blocked. So anything that we deny, suppress, minimize, avoid, obfuscate, choose word, and it doesn't have to be bad. Some people shadow their creativity because they think they need to be practical. Some people shadow their anger because they think they're supposed to be nice. Psychological shadows are anything that we don't want to deal with that is true about our psyche. And those show up as projections. They show up in dreams. They show up as habits and compulsions. They show up as judgments. They always find a way to pop out. And again, one of my favorite shadow exercises is if you're curious about your shadows, look at your browser history. That's a great way to point you towards undealt with content about yourself. I love that. What might they discover when they see, for example, some type of schadenfreude, like how badly is this person living? I think comes from a shadow place. And nobody would want to admit, oh, it's because I want to feel better about myself that I want to look at somebody who's not thriving, who previously thrived. But I love that idea of looking at the browser history as shadow material. Uh, (laughs) It really is. And it's threatening to people. It's like, oh my God, when I'm more embarrassed by my browser history than like my drug life choice history, which is saying something. But shadows are, if we can take the morality off of our internal content, thoughts and feelings are free until they are acted upon. They only become moral, immoral, ethical, unethical once they're acted out. But if we can take the morality off of our internal content, then it's safer to look at it. Because if, oh my God, I'm a terrible person because I thought I could just throw this puppy out the window. I have a puppy and I love him and I would never harm him. But if I can't admit there's a part of me that's like, well, I could do that, (laughs) ick, then it's not going to be safe to be truthful with ourselves. If we can take morality off of personality until it's acted on, then we're golden. So one of the things that you kind of speak about in your book so beautifully is that sense that we have an audience at all times because we are such social creatures and that we can judge ourselves harshly for the thoughts that show up like pop-ups. And I was wondering if you could kind of describe how it's important for us to be in relationship with our thoughts, even the ones that are kind of, frankly, just pop-ups and irrelevant and have nothing to do with who we are and versus how we're in relationship with those thoughts. I love the way you just said it a second ago was like, oh, that's interesting. That just showed up with my puppy who I absolutely adore and want to make sure he lives a nice long life. Beautiful Oscar. But yeah, that was weird that that just showed up. But (laughs) great little doggy. So how do we be in relationship with those thoughts authentically in non-damning, but perhaps a more healthful way? So I love that you teed. That was such a perfect segue into what's a tactical way of working with our thoughts in a non-shamey way. And there's a lot of ways to do it. My preference is to use the internal family systems model which is Dr. Richard Schwartz, who is amazing and the body of work is amazing. And the idea of it is that our personality is not just one thing, but we're like any complex system. We're made up of parts. Part of me knows I should go to the gym. Part of me wants to lay on my butt and watch six hours of West Wing. Part of me knows I probably shouldn't eat like the seventh, like whatever the thing is. And part of me is like, screw it. I'm going to eat it anyway. We all kind of use the language of parts. But the internal family systems model is a very practical, strategic way of working with those parts. And one of my little hacks that I like to use is talk to yourself in third person instead of, oh, 
I want to kill my puppy. (laughs) It's like, oh, wow, there's a part of me. And she just had this really dark thought. Isn't that curious? And then I can create some space, some distance between me and my thoughts. Viktor Frankl Mm. said, in between stimulus and response is a space. And in that space lies our freedom to choose. And the internal family systems model gives us space. It's not, oh my God, I'm a psychopath. It's, wow, she just had a very curious thought. I wonder how I could help this part of me find a more socially acceptable way to act out some rage. And then it allows us to treat our parts with the same compassion that we treat our loved ones, which we're not very quick to. And again, not all behavior is acceptable, but all thoughts are neutral until they're acted out. So if we can talk to them as if they're other people, which they are, that gives us a lot of freedom and a lot of choices. And I love the idea of saying to yourself, instead of, how could you think that? Oh, how interesting. He thought that in the third person rather than in the second person, you. And, or as you suggested in the book, using my name. Wow. Adam just had that thought. Isn't that interesting? I believe you also suggested the name or third person rather than second person that somehow it takes some of the stigma, some of the sting out of it and allows us to have a better conversation with ourselves, which we do all day anyway. It's not a sign of psychopathology. And by the way, as you mentioned in your book, having multiple parts is not a sign of having what used to be called multiple personality now called dissociative identity. So we all have parts. We all have, as I like to think of it, a Senate and a Congress with various voices, (laughs) some of which all need to be heard, but we don't need to necessarily take direction from every part. We just need to hear them, I believe. So yeah, I'm a fan of IFS. I've interviewed Dick Schwartz. He's fantastic, as well as Frank Anderson, both of whom really represent IFS and growing body of work and the number of treatments. And it's you and I are both big fans of self-compassion. One of the things that caused me to laugh out loud, though, in your book, you cited the Adams family as being a great family. I was ecstatic. Can you talk about (laughs) families as a thing and how, I mean, it's obviously a multiple episodes of podcast, but just kind of a soundbite around families and why maybe the Adams family kind of got it right. I love that you get that because I usually get pushback on that. Like, what are you crazy? Like, oh my God, you nailed it as far as I'm concerned. When I sat down to write the family chapter, I don't have a super awesome, healthy model to describe from my own personal experience. So I went to fiction. What's the healthiest fictional family? And if you think about what makes a healthy family, you have an open system where outsiders are welcomed in. The family members enjoy spending time together, but they also have their own interests. The Adams family, now granted, their hobbies are not great. Like drinking cyanide will kill you for sure. But (laughs) Gomez and Morticia are super into each other. Neither of them is looking outside the relationship for their needs. Like those two have a lot of sex and they seem very happy with it. The children will play with each other or they'll play alone. They welcome in outsiders. They're a multi-generational family living harmoniously under one roof. I always wondered why I love that show so much. And it's not because I'm dark and twisted, even though I have parts who are. It's because they're actually a model of a really awesome, healthy family. (laughs) I totally agree. And what's so sad about that is that the healthy family, the way they comport themselves was kind of lasted in this kind of terrifying Morticia world of people who drink cyanide. Anyway, I'm just taken by that. (laughs) PR perhaps was a little bit off point, but maybe if we can get beyond it, I'm so glad. I mean, if, if nothing else, 
one of the things that you and I need to do is propagate the message that the Adams family got it right. They got Adam, it right. Adam's values were good. <laughs> yes, I mean, truly, it's actually really perfect. The things that we think it should look like seldom are. And everything that the Adams family seems like is a dysfunctional, toxic mess is anything but. They are a wonderful example of a, not their hobbies, not their interests, but their, <laughs> their dynamics are incredibly skillful and healthy. Totally agree. The other show that I've come to like in modern times, and I even did a solo episode about this show because I thought they nailed it, was This Is Us. I love that show. And there are a couple other shows that I think are just really good for our psyches, like Parks and Rec. Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, for sure. You don't need to like soccer to love that show. Everybody needs to watch it. In fact, I actually prescribed that show earlier today to somebody who just, it will be great medicine. Yes. Oh, he's so good. And he's from Kansas, where you're from, I believe. Yes. Joe, at least, which is very cool. Let's talk about friends. You talk about scorpions and hummingbirds. And I want to hear about friends and their role, as well as the scorpion and hummingbird model, which I think was brilliant. So thank you. Adults are not taught how to do friends. We think that the rules of childhood friendships are supposed to just easily transfer to adulthood, which is we talk every day and we see each other all the time and we tell each other everything and we're best friends. It's like, no, as adults, it's okay to see friends infrequently. It's okay to not be in constant contact. And so with scorpion friends, when I was researching this, it's like scorpions can actually eat a lot relative to their body weight and be satisfied for a very long time before they need to eat again. I am like this with my friends. I would rather have one or two really deep connected days and then I don't need to see them for months and months and months and I'm fine. Like I am fed. So scorpion friends are the kind who fill you up and you don't need to be in constant contact. Hummingbirds need to eat every single day and they're always like flying around. Hummingbird friends are the kind where you're texting each other all day and you're texting memes back and forth. And there's no right or wrong. Again, it's about being honest with yourself. Hummingbird friends don't work for me because I don't want to be in constant contact. I am with people in a deep, connected, meaningful, soulful way all damn day, which I love. But with my friends, I want to see them when we're together, get fed and then go our separate ways and then come back together later on. They're appreciated. They're loved. They know that. I know that. And we don't need to be around each other all the time. But you know, oh my God, how could you go a year without seeing your friends? It's like, so I'm an adult and I can do whatever I damn well please. And it's know yourself well enough to know what type of friendship, what structure of friendship is most compatible with who you are. It really reduces the conflict in your friendships if you have a structure that's compatible. I love that. And I gave a TEDx talk on friendship and adulthood. It was based on the fact that I work with really highly successful, really attractive people who don't have friends oftentimes because they've moved around so much and they haven't done kind of the maintenance of the friendships and they feel awkward about even trying to resume contact with people with whom they've not been in touch for a very long time. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how friends can help you get unstuck and maybe how friends might actually contribute to staying stuck. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about friendship through the lens of stuckness. And I love that you're talking about adult friendships because it's so vital to having a rich and fulfilling and purposeful and satisfying adult life is to have friends. But we're again, we're not taught how to do it. And unfortunately, misery loves company, but success and health and happiness is very isolating. And it's really hard to celebrate your success if you're friends. And again, I'm not suggesting you cut everyone off who's struggling. I'm not saying that. Do not DM me with that. No, not saying that. <laughs> that is not. What she's saying, that's what I'm saying. As, as your witness. 
I am saying that as someone who was miserable and broke and depressed, I had plenty of people around me. But as I got healthier, as I got more successful, as my life started to work, I noticed that all my friends disappeared because it's easy to call someone with here's everything going wrong because then they can feel good helping me. But who are you going to call with? Oh my God, wow, I killed it today at the meeting. Oh my God, wow, this just happened. Oh my God, I just closed this sale. Oh my God, my company just sold for a billion dollars. That is a very, very tough. And I also have a similar population as you. It's very lonely to be successful and not be able to share that. Because if you're not friends with people who are aware of their own jealousy shadows enough to at least name it, then the friendship is not going to work. I have a dear friend who I love, amazing colleague, and I have parts that are jealous of her and her work. And I can say to her, oh my God, I'm so excited for you. Don't worry, I'm managing my jealous parts. They're projecting, I've got them and I can hold space and be happy for you. But again, we're not taught how to do that. So all of these shadow things tend to interrupt adult friendships, particularly for successful people. Oh, I love that. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, I Love You, Man. It's a great movie, highly recommended. If anybody hasn't seen it, everybody should see it. Jason Siegel and Paul Rudd. And who I also believe is from Kansas City. Hey, we got a lot of Kansas City going on on this call. He talks about the fact that he's about to get married to Rashida Jones in the movie. It's a really great film. And she realizes that he has no friends and she has a ton of friends. It's not always that way, but oftentimes divergent quality between genders is that men have a little bit more difficulty sustaining those friendships than the women have lots. And it can put undue burden on the relationship and the marriage. And you were talking about, I love that idea of that shadow jealousy, that envy that we can feel and knowing it, naming it at least to ourselves and recognizing that it could interfere with our ability to really be champions of our friends as they go off. And I think it really stems from the idea that, you know, that social comparison, as well as the possibility that, oh my gosh, if my friend really takes off and the books really sell, will they still want to be my friend? That vulnerability of, Will they abandon me? And just knowing that is really important. And perhaps having a framework through which to talk about these fears in the relationship, knowing that the relationship itself is a container that can sustain a conversation like that. Or not. Or or not. not. Right. That's okay. Like a casting director. I talk about this in the book. If a friend is not doing their work and is not aware of their shadows and their soulful projection, that's okay. It's just you need to cast them in a different role. I have a friend I talk about in the book who is harmless compulsive liar. Like they lie about the stupidest stuff. And I know that they're full of crap most of the time and they know that I know, but they're not a deep soulful friend for me. They're a let's go do a thing kind of a friend. Hiking partner, as you described her. Yeah. And I thought that was really great that you mentioned that. It's fine. If I take a spill on a mountain, this person is going to be able to get me to safety. Emotionally, they are not available for authentic, deep, soulful, meaningful, whatever. And as adults, you don't have to only have level 10 friends. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having fun do things with friends and soulful friends and friends who fall in between. But again, we're not taught that it's our movie and we can cast it accordingly. The role that we want someone to play might not be compatible with who they are or who they're choosing to be. And that's okay, but yeah. And the model I chose was superheroes. We don't expect Aquaman to be able to fly like Superman. And similarly, I don't expect my buddy who I watch sports with to talk about something deep and psychological, perhaps. Maybe, maybe they can, but maybe they are my sports watching buddy and they understand sports in a way that makes me feel so connected to the sports and we have a great time together. And that's the limit. And he's not going to help me move. He's not going to help me talk about my deep existential concerns. 
but <laughs> he will be able to geek out to sports with me and that'll be fine. That's kind of the unwritten contract. And I love that you have that with your friend. And I also love that you know that in spite of the fact that she's a compulsive liar, that she has the integrity to be able to get you to safety if, God forbid, on one of those hikes, you were to take a spill. Right. And that is a very limited role that that person can play in my life successfully. But if I tried to, and I really like her and it would be great if we have a different relationship, but I have to grieve the reality of this person is available in this way and I can't change people and I can't force people to change or see or do. And again, it's really hard to take your hands off of other people's steering wheels, but it makes life a whole lot more pleasant to do so. I love the idea that when we are happier with our lives, we feel less compelled to change others. Yes. Oh, that's great. I've got to ask you, is there anything I should have asked but haven't yet? So trauma. I just want to hit trauma really quick because it's so Let's do that. We went from no one is saying trauma to now everybody is saying trauma. So I just wanted to give the definition that I work under, which is Dr. Peter Levine, somatic experiencing, all about that life. So much yes. Trauma is an internal process. It's not defined by the event. It's defined by how our nervous system metabolizes things. And so I like to rename trauma as brain indigestion. It's like, take the T word out of the equation. Don't worry about it. You can get indigestion from the same turkey sandwich you've eaten every day, or you get salmonella from the poisoned food. Like your brain gets and your stomach gets to decide what will be digested because it's an automatic process. Trauma, similarly, is an automatic life digestion or indigestion process. So if the word trauma trips you up because you have a good life, quote, Just say that I've got some brain indigestion. I don't know why I'm panicking. I don't know why this thing isn't settling in my system, but it's not. So, okay, what do we do about it? Not why, but how. Don't start with why. Start with how can I get my system to feel a little bit more settled? I love that definition. I believe you've also said something that Peter also talks about is just an overwhelming experience that leads to that indigestion. It's just an overwhelm is kind of kind of consistent and you're nodding. Wonderful. I'm so delighted to have you as a colleague. And I've got to ask you if you were somehow able to confer through some form of magic, a wish, a gift to society of an insight or a skill that would dramatically improve people's lives, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would impact the individual as well as perhaps society at large? Oh my God, what a question. Like I wish for world peace. So (laughs) I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Assuming that everyone's basic needs are met and that everyone has the safety that they need and no one is subject to systemic oppression. Like, let's just take those biggies off the table for a second. That's the wish, of course. My wish is that people would know that our efforts to avoid our truth are going to create so much more chaos than the pain of dealing with the truth. An unpleasant truth is always preferable to a happy lie. Always. And that was the myth that kept me stuck for so long. It's like as painful as the truth is, The truth shall set you free. I have a friend who likes to say, but first it'll kick your ass. And it's true. But our efforts to avoid what's true cause way more pain than the pain of dealing with what's true. And I am blown away by what you just said. An unpleasant truth is far superior to living a pleasant lie. And that is a powerful statement. That is the kind of thing that is easy to say and really hard to deliver on. And I totally agree. So I want to just, I, I, I just, I, I'm so glad to have you on the show to inform my listeners 
This has been incredible. I recommend your book most highly. You are as delightful in real life as you are (laughs) on the page. Our field is improving with your presence. Thank you so much. And Mutual Appreciation Society. Hashtag Sam Girl here. This was Uh, (laughs) (laughs) right on. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 